All right, Dr. Mark Brutland's going to come and minister the word of the Lord. What a great, uh, great ministry you had with us Friday night, also on Saturday. Do you testify to that, men? Amen. It was awesome, wasn't it? And he's uh, just a great friend to our church, a friend to me, a great man of God. Can we give him a great cornerstone welcome this morning? God bless you, Dr. Mark. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Please be seated. It's great to be here. I love this church. I love uh, the leadership here, this precious family that God has sent to bless you, and I know that you bless them as well. Wow, the men's group, they were rowdy. Man, it was great. I really enjoyed being with them. It was great to see uh, my friend Marty Sloan. That was a serendipitous surprise. I, I knew him in Ohio. Then I knew him when he moved to Arkansas. And I talked to him on the phone as he was in the process of moving to Illinois. So I get here to Michigan, and who walks in but Marty Sloan. And so I was really uh, blessed in every way. It's great to be back here. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, please, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, I want to read the first five verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, let's stop right there for a moment. Uzziah, it'll be easy to get the names backwards. Uzziah the king, Isaiah the prophet. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Now, pause one more time. If you're following me in a more contemporary translation, you will not see the word also. I don't know why it's left out. It's in the King James Version. It should be there. It's a great word, and I'm hanging the, the message this morning on that little word also. But it should be there. When I was at ORU, as the president there, the young people used to ask me all the time, Mr. President, why do you always read from the King James Bible? Seems old-timey. Why do you... Well, first of all, part of it was loyalty. I went to high school with King James. and (laughs) Jimmy, we called him Jimmy then. He wasn't a king in high school. The second thing was the flowery King James language, the Shakespearean these and thous that offend everyone else appeal to my creative heart. I like the sound of it. I can't get used to some of the modern translations where Jesus comes down to the Sea of Galilee and says, it's happening, dudes. It's just me. But in this case, it turns out to be important. Because look at what he's saying. He's not denying that the king is dead. He just says, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train, that is the the long outflowing of his regal garments and his train filled the temple and above it stood the seraphim. One more pause. It's the only time in the whole Bible that this word is mentioned. It's these six bewinged creatures uh, of s- such power. And above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face and with twain he covered his feet and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. One more pause. Him that cried. It was an angel. People often misread this passage of scripture. And I've even heard preachers say from the pulpit, the temple shook at the voice of God. God has not yet spoken. If the temple would shake at the voice of an angel, what if God should speak? And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Put your hands on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Lord, with our hands upon the word and our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them, we're asking you to do all the rest. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to our inner selves that when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Amen and amen. There are those events, geopolitically, nationally, that seem to rise up and claim the authority historically to name a year. Many of us have those events that we know of. I, I know that I'm probably one of the oldest people in the room here, but I remember exactly where I was in the high school at Damascus, Maryland, when the principal's voice came over the loudspeaker and said, let me have your attention. I have the sober responsibility to tell you that President Kennedy has just been shot dead in Dallas, Texas. I'll never forget that year. I know that moment. I know exactly where I was when the word came to us that Dr. King had been shot off a balcony of a hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. I remember the year that Columbine entered the functional vocabulary of American culture and we learned that our high schools, which we thought were places of safety and education, could become killing fields in a moment. All except the very youngest of you here will remember exactly where you were when the phrase 9-11 changed the whole shape of American life, and we learned that there were people who hate us, our culture, our civilization, our values, our nation, and that we were going to live from that moment on in the United States with a target on our backs. We also have those phrases in our own lives, those, those moments in our own lives, uh, the, the year you got married, the year that that first baby was born. The year when, praise God, he finally moved out. <laughs> the year of your first job, the, the year of that great promotion. We all have those moments. Isn't it inter interesting that when Isaiah, the, the dean of all the prophets, records his what's called his call report. All the prophets had a call report where they, it is exactly what it sounds like. They report the circumstances and situation of when they are called into the office of a prophet. Isaiah was a priest. So he, he is recording this supernatural moment when he is summoned out of the office of priest and into the office 
of a prophet. And he dates it. Isn't it human? Isn't it so like us that he dates his own call report with this most extravagant supernatural experience, this vision, probably one of the greatest, grandest, most glorious visions of God's power ever afforded a human being. And when he receives that, he dates it with a contemporary political event. How like us, how human. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord, and he was high and lifted up. Now, why does God appear to Isaiah that way in that moment on that year? Well, let's look at the context. Why does he say in the year that King Uzziah died? Uzziah, you may well remember, came to the throne, young king, popular, charismatic, much loved, much appreciated, especially by the priesthood of which Isaiah was a member because he restored temple worship. He opened the temple. He, he was a patron of the priesthood. And, and the nation loved him. Uh, uh, Israel began to have some resurgence under Uzziah. They began to win some battles that they had been losing. Their frontiers extended. Uzziah built some new military garrisons. There was an economic resurgence in the country. Until at the peak of his career, in the arrogancy of his heart, Uzziah decided that he didn't just want to be the king, he also wanted to be a priest. And he went into the temple... To offer sacrifice, the legitimate priesthood resisted him. They said, no, your majesty, God forbid that you should do this. And Uzziah was so angry that God struck him in his face with leprosy. Now, for us now, leprosy is not the horror that it was then. We know leprosy is a viral disease and it can be treated with medicine. But at that time... In fact, throughout the Old and even the New Testament, leprosy was considered an outward and visible sign of the curse of God upon an inward and, and corrupt life. It was a horrible shame. Imagine that that shame is now upon the head of state, the king himself. I've tried to come up with some kind of a modern corollary to show what that would feel like and the only example I've been able to come up with is probably not a good one, but it's the best one I can find. Imagine if someday some president of the United States went on international television and announced that he had AIDS. Not from a blood transfusion or a medical mishap, but from his lifestyle. And that he was, he was suffering with AIDS in office. We'd be humiliated. It would be an, an, a national scandal. That's how it was for Uzziah to have leprosy. When foreign dignitaries would come to Israel, they'd say, we'd like to meet with the king. They'd say, no, you, you can't meet with the king. He has leprosy. No one was allowed to even have any interaction with someone that had leprosy. If you walked down a public street and you saw people coming toward you, you had to alert them. You had to cry out your own curse. I'm unclean so that they could move to the other side of the street and avoid you. Now the king has leprosy. Now he's died. And Isaiah is pacing up and down in the temple at night, 
meditating upon the the death of Uzziah, and he's dealing with the riot of conflicting emotions that many of us have at such transitions in life. It's one of the things that we have to deal with at funerals all the time. Grandpa finally dies from Alzheimer's, and we feel all kinds of mixed up emotions inside of us. We, we, we sense relief. Thank God that's over. It was a terrible for him. It was a drain on the family. It was a drain on the resources, a drain, a drain on grandma's physical strength. But then when we feel that relief, we immediately feel guilt. We say, what's the matter with me? Am I gr- glad my grandfather's dead? We begin to think maybe now that grandpa's gone, things will be better for the family. Then we think, wait a minute. He was the patriarch. He was the linchpin on which this whole family hung. Maybe things will get worse. That's exactly what Isaiah is dealing with. Maybe now, maybe now that this curse of leprosy has been lifted from the nation, maybe things will get better. Wait a minute. If the last king died with leprosy, how bad could things get? So his national fear and his national hope are warring with each other inside of him. And suddenly, in the expanse of the temple over his head, he is shown this unbelievable, extravagant vision of God Almighty as a king seated upon a throne and the train of his garment, his robe, spills down through the the air of the temple, glowing in resplendent glory. And above it, these magnificent six-winged creatures called the seraphs. Imagine that. These are not the limp-wristed, golden-haired, effeminate creatures you hang on your Christmas tree. These are terrifying, huge, supernatural beings. And they begin to shout to one another across the expanse. And the echo of their angelic voices shakes the temple on its foundations. Holy, holy, holy. And then the whole temple is filled with smoke. Now... Here's my question. Why does God appear to Isaiah that night as a king seated upon his throne? God is God. He can appear in any form he wants. He could appear as a purple unicorn if he wanted to. He did at multiple times appear in different forms. Once as a burning bush, a pillar of fire, a cloud of smoke. Why does he choose to appear to Isaiah as a king in resplendent glory seated upon his throne? Why? Because of what the nation and what the prophet are dealing with, the death of the king. So he's saying, I know that the last king died in shame and disease, but the king of glory is perfect in his holiness and power. He is saying, I know that you're concerned because the king of is because the throne of Israel is empty, but the throne of heaven is occupied. He says, I know that you are filled with shame over the unholiness of human leadership, but be inspired and encouraged by the holiness that the angels celebrate. Now, look, Isaiah is not denying that the king is dead. Listen to me. Faith is not denial. In the spirit-filled world, we've often gotten all mixed up about faith. 
We think that if you face reality, that it's a bad report. When the spies came back from the Holy Land to report to, uh, to Joshua about what they had seen, the fact that they said there were giants in there was not a bad report. There were giants. Faith is not denial. The bad report was there are giants in there and we can't beat them. Joshua and, and Caleb, when they came back to Moses, Joshua and Caleb said, there are giants in there, but our God is greater than the giants. So the fact that Uzziah, the king, is dead, he's not denying that. But he says, I see it. I see the change. I see the problem. I see the national things we're dealing with. But I also see the Lord. And he's high and lifted up. That is exactly the fulcrum on which we stand as we face transitions in human history and in our own families and lives. People say to us, how do you keep calm? How, how do you face reality? How do you deal with all of these things? Don't you, don't you know all these things that are happening? Don't you know about coronavirus? Don't you know? We're, look, I know what you're... We're all facing the same stuff. We all live in the same world. We've got an upcoming election and people are freaking out. In this very room, I don't know all of you, but about half of you are terrified that candidate A will be elected. The other half terrified Karen candidate B will be elected. And everybody's saying, if this guy gets it, we're all going under. If this guy gets it, it's the end of the world. Coronavirus. We're not going to make it. Listen, I, I've been doing this for a long time. Does anybody here, most of you were not even born in 1988, but does anybody remember this nincompoop wrote this book? 88 reasons Jesus, oh, some of you remember. 88 reasons Jesus is coming in 1988. He's sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And spirit-filled, blood-washed, born-again Christians with Bibles in their hands that told them, do not set a date. Freaked out. That's what's discouraging about the ministry. People, you preach to a woman in my church. Came to me, she said, well, next Tuesday, I'm keeping the kids home from school. I said, Why? She said, Jesus is coming on Tuesday. I said, well, why are you keeping the kids home from school? She stared at me like I was speaking Hebrew. She said, I don't want Jesus to come and my kids are at school. I said, he can find them. <laughs> Jesus knows where your kids go to school. Well, Jesus didn't come in 1988, did he? What'd that guy do? What did he do? Oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. He wrote another one. 89 reasons Jesus is coming in 1989. He didn't sell quite as many, but he sold a lot. Jesus didn't come in 1989. How many of you remember Y2K? Did the Christian church freak out? I mean, went nuts. Bought guns, buried their gold in the backyard and stockpiled pork and beans. Christians, born again Christians. Nobody's going to get my beans. Pry my cold, dead fingers off of my guns. 
it never seemed to dawn on anybody that they should like share the beans. Here's my question. Were you, were you really going to shoot anybody for pork and beans? Y2K, the planes are going to fall out of the sky. The banks will fail. It's the end of Western civilization. Look, we face history. We live in history. But history is not happening to God. God doesn't pick up the New York Times in the morning. God doesn't pick up the New York Times in the morning to find a road. Now what am I going to do? In fact, if God's reading a newspaper, it isn't the Times. (laughs) God's God's watching Fox. No, all right. Stay calm. Stay calm. No, God, look, you remember in in the book of Revelation, the seven seals that are on the scroll? Those seals are the unfolding epochs of human history. Life history cannot move on until that seal is open and that seal is open and that seal is open. And, and John the Revelator weeps because he says no one can open the seals. What does the angel say? Stay calm. The lamb, he opens the seals. The seals that move history forward, they don't pop off at random like the buttons off a fat man's coat. They... They are opened only by sovereign decree. History is not happening to God. It's unfolding in the palm of his hand. Second thing is this. When we we get our eyes, yes, we see these things. But we have our eyes fixed on him who is holy and, and the king of history. When we do that, it restores our depth perception. When I was a kid, I didn't grow up in a church like this, warm and wonderful and joyful and charismatic. I I grew up in little, my family were very secular, but we were two or three times a year Methodists, and we'd go to little tiny liturgical churches, and the worship services were, okay, I was trying to think of a nice word, no, they were just boring. Um, it were boring, deadly, mind-numbing, boring. And, and as a child, and we didn't have children's church. Remember that? Nobody didn't have children's church. You went to big church and you just sat there. And my mother, she's still alive, 96 years old, five feet tall. My, my little mother uh, defied all the laws of physics I learned in high school. Uh, is it, how long are these pews? Nine feet, ten feet? My mother, a little five-foot-tall mother, sit on one end, and I misbehaving on the other end. How can she pinch me? How could she reach me? I've never learned that. And so you're there. You have to be quiet in all this dead worship. So I learned depth perception in those worship services. There was a huge cut-glass chandelier that hung in the top of our church. And I learned that I could make my thumb bigger than that chandelier. So here's what I want you to do. Come on, now humble yourself and do this. Come on. I want you to extend your right arm and raise your thumb. Come on now. And look at one of these screens up here, will you? Do you see there's no way you could make your thumb bigger than one of those screens? Now close one eye. 
Okay, and slowly, carefully draw your thumb toward your open eyes. Closer, closer, closer. Now right against it. It's a miracle. (laughs) You have made your thumb bigger than the screen or the chandelier. Now, pastor, if you look out here one Sunday during the middle of your sermon and the whole church is just have the benediction because it's over. (laughs) No, you see, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to take some event, some circumstance. You lose your job or I'm not making light of these things. They're terrible things. They're earth shaking for you. What Satan wants to do is take those things, a death, a loss, a grief, a a national something, and push it right up against your face until it blocks out the light. And he wants to say, there, see, it's bigger than God is. And he'll challenge you. He'll say, what do you have to say to that? And you say, I see it. I see it. I'm not denying it. I see it. But I also see the Lord. And he's high and lifted up. The next thing is this. It it also restores your own sense of humility before the God of human history. What is the moment Isaiah, a prophet, when Isaiah sees God, he becomes aware of who he is compared to God. He says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen God. He feels who he is in that moment. You ever, you ever see these uh, movie stars being interviewed on TV? And they'll frequently ask them this question. I've seen it multiple times. Some arrogant, agnostic movie star. They say, when you get to heaven, what are you going to ask God? You ever see that? Which is based, maybe based on a false presupposition to start with. But when you... When you get to heaven, what are you going to ask God? And here's what they say. I, I got some questions I'm going to ask God. I want to ask him, what about famine and pestilence and coronavirus and, and genocide? As if we're going to hold God accountable for the horrors that we create in the earth. But when you get before God, you won't. No, you won't. No, no, you won't. I have, I have some things I'd like to know. I have some questions. I would like to know why, as adult males get older, why does our hair fall out of our heads and grow in our ears? I, okay, I'd like to know that, you know. But the fact of the matter is, when you are ushered into the throne room of God, walking on that golden avenue, and the throngs of heaven in every distance are singing the music of the spheres, and the sky lit by sunless glory is so bright that the eyes in your glorified body can hardly stand, and the rainbow over the throne, and the angels, and the archangels, and God's voice like 10,000 waterfalls, and he says, any questions? You're going to say, I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> so, so not only are, is our depth perception restored, but our sense of humility, of who we are before God, is restored. It is only then, isn't, isn't this fascinating, 
God has not yet spoken in this story. People misread it all the time. He has seen God. His eyes are opened. He has heard the angels. His ears begin to be opened, but not all the way. Then he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We didn't read it, but it says an angel flies through the air with a coal in his hand that he has taken with tongs off of the altar. Now that's a complicated little mechanical operation there. Why? If he can hold the coal in his hands, it's not too hot to burn an angel. So if he can hold it, why didn't he pick it up with his hands? And he picks it up with tongues, transfers it to his hands, and flies toward Isaiah. Why? The altar of God is so holy that not even an angel can run the risk of touching it. But the lips of sinful humanity are so fragile that it doesn't want it to be the cold mechanical touch of an instrument. It's a personal ministry of healing grace. So he pulls the coal off of the altar with tongs, transfers it to his hand. Now imagine you feel the sense of your uncleanness and an angel, a seraph, not even a standard angel. The only place in the whole Bible they're mentioned, six wings, is flying across the expanse of the temple, coming toward your face with a live coal. (laughs) I'm just, I'm saying... I have a good friend who is, uh, lives in Jerusalem. He's um, not a, a believer. He's a Jew. But I asked him one time, what, when you read, I'm a man of unclean lips, what does it mean to you? He said, well, the most unclean thing imaginable would be pig's blood. So he said, what comes to my mind is that he says, I have pig's blood smeared across my mouth. And everybody I look at in the whole civilization has pig's blood smeared across their mouth. So the angel is coming closer and closer and closer and closer. There's that breathtaking moment when suddenly you are not hurt. But all that nastiness is burned away. Now at that moment, this is the first time Isaiah can now hear God. And it's as though the the image, God does not speak to Isaiah. He's not speaking. It's as though suddenly Isaiah can hear God inside his office. That God is in his office kind of pacing up and down and talking to himself. Who will go? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Whom shall we send? And suddenly Isaiah on the outside now can hear that. Because his depth perception has been restored. His humility has been restored. Now he has been cleansed. What a remarkable work of grace. The angel touches Isaiah's mouth and his ears are opened. And he can hear God inside. In English, in in the King James Bible, he says, here am I, send me. But it has a slightly arrogant sound. Like the second string quarterback walking up behind the coach pulling on his sleeve. Send me in, send me in, let me play, let me play, let me play. It sounds like that in English. It's not like that in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it sounds like this. Here I stand. Look me over and see if I'll do. Is there any way that you can use me? 
So when we have, when we come to the revelation of God's transcendence over the historical realities that are freaking everybody else out, God can use us to speak into the history that we're living. So when people say to you, how do you stay calm? How, how, how are you facing all this? Why aren't you freaking out? You say, look, I see the same stuff you do. I see it. I see it. And I'm not making light of it. I'm just telling you. I see the Lord. And he's high and lifted up. This, this is nothing that we're facing is a surprise to God. God can handle this. God can handle this. And that voice, that voice of calm and faith and, and responsible faith, that can calm the nation around us. That can calm the panic-stricken people around us. It, it's, it's the voice that represents the God who is seated upon a throne, holy and powerful. Well, let me close with this. You've been very patient with this. And I, I will preach a different message in the second service. Pastor asked me to, and I'm happy to inflict another message on you. you should, if you've misbehaved at all, you deserve to stay and hear a second one. Let me close with this. I'm now 72 years old. When I was in my 20s, I made friends with a retired Presbyterian missionary who was in a retirement home in Atlanta. He was in his 90s. So that was 50 years ago nearly. I met a man who was in his 90s. So when he was in his 20s, think how long ago that was. He had been a missionary in Southeast Asia for the Presbyterian Church. And in those days, you didn't get on a jet and fly somewhere for a two-week mission trip. In those days, you went there to live and to stay and to bury family members who died. He had a wife and two children who were buried there. And then finally, at retirement, your denomination brought you back to U.S. and you died in a nursing home, which is what was happening to him. But he was one of the sweetest old saints I've ever met in my whole life. He told me that when he was a young person there ministering in Southeast Asia, that he just had a... Now, uh, Hollywood has told us what to call it. We didn't know what to call it before. We all had one, but we didn't know what to call it. It's called a bucket list. But he said he had a bucket list item of seeing Mount Everest. He said he just don't know where that came from. He just always wanted to see Mount Everest. But he was a poor missionary deep in Southeast Asia and knew he was never going to get the chance. Finally, he got invited, all expense paid, to attend a, a mission conference in Germany, and that was one extra day. So he decided that he would land in Nepal, hire a guide, go over and see Mount Everest, and then go on to Munich. He landed in Nepal, and he said the day landed, as God would have it, a massive fog bank engulfed the entire subcontinent. He said when he landed, he couldn't even see the terminal. So he told the guide inside, he said, this is stupid. I can't even see the terminal. I'll just get on the plane and fly on to Germany. He said, the guide said, it's bigger than you think. He said he went with him. They took a train. Then they took a Land Rover. Then they got off and walked on some mountain trail. I don't know where. To some viewing platform or something, some place where they could see the great mountain at great advantage. But he said as they walked, 
he held on to the guide's coattail and he said he murmured and grumbled the whole way. This is stupid. Let's go back. He said, I can't even see my feet. How can I see the mountain? And he said the whole way the guy just kept saying the whole thing. The same thing. It's bigger than you think. Finally, the guide engineered him onto this viewing platform or whatever it was. And he said, there, now look. And he said he peered through the nearly impenetrable fog and against the distant horizon, he thought he could see one mountain just a little taller than the others. And he said, there, I think I see it. And he said that guy laughed, came around behind him and took his head and said, not down there. He said, look up there. That is actually one of the sweetest and most comforting ministries of the Holy Spirit. Whether it is in the face of geopolitical distress or at the graveside of a loved one, the Holy Spirit comes behind us and with feathered fingers, he lifts us skyward and he says, not down there, look up there. Praise his holy name. Now let's pray all over the house. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for the goodness of your word. For the encouragement, for the faith, for the hope that we have. Transcendent and eternal. Anchored not in doctrine, but in a living God. Now with your eyes closed, your heads bowed, if you'd say, Dr. Mark, will you pray for me? There are things in life, history, America, my own family... I I came in this morning deeply distressed, really in a state of anxiety. Will you pray with me that I may also see the Lord high and lifted up? If that's you, then you lift your hand up right where you are and you can take it right back down and say, I need this. I need hope. Sure, sure. Yes, sir. I see this lady right there. Yes, it's easy. Life eats at us. It nibbles our faith away. Heavenly Father, for all of us, for this whole church. For today, for this year, for politics, whatever it is, whatever it is, God, we believe you and thank you. Keep our eyes on you, for you are the king, high and lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you and God bless this great church. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you and give you peace. You're new to our church. My wife and I will be right out there by guest services. Would love to meet with you. You'll even get a coupon for a free donut. Can't beat that. Can't beat that. Great message. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I also saw the Lord. I love that. I love that. Be blessed. You're dismissed. Thank you.